¿Estás cansado de oír siempre lo mismo y escuchar la misma canción una y otra vez? Pues te damos la bienvenida a los podcasts de Autentia Desarrollo, donde os acercamos las mejores charlas técnicas de la comunidad. DevOps Days Madrid The Path to a Serverless Native Era with Kubernetes by Paolo Miandri A short introduction of me. I am uh, Paolo Mainardi. I come from uh, Italy, Milano. I am the CTO and founder of uh, Spark Fabric. We are a small company based in Milan. We are uh, 25 engineers right now. We are growing, we are hiring. If you are interested to know more about us, you can uh, check out our website and uh, my website as well. And uh, yes, what is the topic uh, of uh, this talk? Today we are uh, cover uh, some, uh, some aspects. I will uh, start by explaining you What is the hype cycle? You know that uh, we are uh, very affected by the hype cycle, uh, especially in uh, our uh, sector. And uh, according, um, um, we will uh, see what is the hype cycle according uh, to Gartner and uh, why it's important uh, to know it. I think that it's very important because as we are very affected by, by the hype cycles, When we pick up a technology from the bookshelf, uh, we are basically uh, doing a decision that will come along with us for years. So using these techniques, we can uh, better choose the technology for our new startup or for our current business. Then I will uh, review some uh, basic serverless concepts, uh, <clears throat> talking about functions, uh, backends, uh, and, and container as a service, and so on. To finish, Uh, I will uh, try to mix what is serverless and uh, what is Kubernetes and how to make them work seamlessly. And um, yeah, um, you know maybe um, that Kubernetes is uh, very strongly binded uh, with the infrastructure where it runs and uh, the concept of servers. So I, we will see how to implement the serverless paradigms on something like that. As you can see here, the hype cycle is a branded graphical representation uh, developed by American research uh, information technology firm Gartner. Maybe you already heard about them for their, uh, their famous reports, which is the magic quadrants of clouds, of cloud providers. And uh, is here to represent the maturity, the adoption and the social application of emerging technologies through five main phases. We know that humans are famously better predicting the future of technologies and we tend usually to overestimate technologies' abilities in the near term and massively underestimate in the long, what they can do in the long term. So, for example, if you could ever talk to myself of three years ago, I would probably bet everything on blockchain or 3D printing Uh, strongly convinced that uh, we were very close to a new technology breakthrough that was changing uh, everything, but, uh, you know, then the things slowed down, almost faded uh, from uh, the masses, mass uses, but uh, we can apply the, the same thing uh, for the old technologies, AI, 3D printing, they are waves. So actually, we can use this tool to better understand the market and according to our confidence with the, with the risk, choose or not to invest or pick up that technology or product. 
So the very first phase is the technology trigger. Technology trigger is, uh, in this stage, a potential disruptive technology is conceptualized. Also, if, if, if uh, it's just a proof of concept and nothing is uh, yet proven. Uh, I don't know what happened. Uh, do you know what, what is the agenda? And uh, we were talking about <coughs> which are the um, phases of the hype cycle. As I said, the first, um, as you can see, the first uh, stage of the hype cycle, according to the Gartner uh, representation, is uh, the technology trigger. In this stage, a potential disruptive technology is uh, conceptualized. Also, if uh, it's just a proof of concept and nothing is uh, yet proven. For example, if uh, we, we use Docker uh, as an example, it was the 2013 when uh, Docker was presented by Solomon Ikes. At the time, it was the CEO of .cloud, Docker company. It wasn't yet created. And uh, with a li lightning talk of just five minutes titled The Future of Linux Containers, he basically changed everything. At the time, Docker wasn't much more than a CLI tool to run Linux containers, a very nice wrapper around Elixir, which are the Linux primitives to spin up containers. It, it wasn't even there the Docker file to create the new Docker images, so you can do very just few stuff with it. But it is, it's exploded. You know what happened uh, next? Uh, in just five minutes, the talk basically changed everything. Now, when this happens, a lot of interest gets generated around the technology, then thanks to social media, contents, news, conferences, we face the peak of uh, inflated expectations. In, the, in this stage, we are over the early adoption. Uh, the early publicity produced a number of success stories, but also uh, a lot of failure ones. Using the Docker uh, analogy again, the first releases of Docker was clearly ready to run production workloads, but a lot of users did it, and uh, this generated big waves of negative press of failure stories, causing stress and uh, disillusionment around the uh, containers, around Docker, saying that uh, the product uh, it was ready. But even though they always clearly state on that side that Docker was not yet a stable product. This negative press uh, leads us to the trough of uh, disillusionment. In uh, this stage, the curve of uh, hype cycle begins to descend until uh, there comes a point when uh, the media and press totally abandon the topic and uh, the technology or and the interest start to go off. This happens uh, in uh, most of the case where the technology doesn't fulfill the hype or looks like it's not really capable to solve what promised the beginning. Some producers are unsuccessful and fails, others start to drop the products. And uh, this is also the phase where investments continue uh, just for the surviving company that are still capable to improve their products, to improve the technology, to satisfy the early adopters. Then we face, uh, if we can survive, we face a slope of enlightenment. In this stage, more instances of how the technology can really benefit the enterprises start to crystallize on the market and uh, become more widely understood. Let's think about containers. We know now that we can uh, really scale our applications, our workload, thanks to the use of containers. This is also the phase where second and third generation of products start to appear uh, from the technology providers. 
let's use again the Docker analogy here. We can think the, to the product iteration of Docker Swarm that was their uh, solution for orchestrating containers in cloud, where the last generations they failed, but uh, the last generation added the, the native support to Kubernetes, making it uh, a first-class product to orchestrate containers in cloud again and help, uh, help them to survive after a very profound crisis of, uh, of the company. Then there is the last phase, which is the uh, plateau of productivity. Now the last stage, uh, in uh, this stage, the technology is widely implemented and mainstream adopted. Its place in the market is very well understood and the standards and the criteria gets defined uh, for evaluating technology providers with the certifications uh, and, and so on. So we are in a phase where the technology is uh, stabilized, like uh, we can uh, say Kubernetes is uh, now, basically. But uh, according to the Gartner Lifecycle Emerging Technologies uh, tool, where was played, where is placed, where was placed serverless in uh, this hype cycle? The last report where uh, serverless was placed by Gartner in, uh, this, uh, or in uh, the emerging technologies was the 2017, where um, was placed between the technology trigger and the peak of inflated expectation. To me, it's totally correct, because at the time uh, there was uh, very few services. There was uh, maybe just AWS Lambda that became GA in uh, 2015 and uh, all the other vendors was uh, creating a products around uh, function as a service, a serverless product, but it was in an alpha or beta stage. Today, uh, we are uh, instead facing uh, a more mature and well-established market. We probably reached the slope of alignment. There are a lot of serverless uh, products, the investments are growing, uh, and the adoption of serverless technology is becoming widely more and more accepted also for enterprise uh, workloads. According to Gartner, today, in the next three years, serverless will uh, become the predominant uh, com cloud computing model, considering that uh, all uh, really today, uh, according to the Gartner data, more than 10% of uh, cloud workloads are serverless-based. So. What is serverless? Serverless is something uh, that uh, a lot of people jokes about because, uh, you know, when we think about uh, workloads, code, uh, functions that must be executed somewhere, we need servers. Yeah. But if uh, uh, we compare it to another name that uh, it looks like very normal to us, it, for example, wireless, we know that wires are still needed to connect our router to the network, but we as a users, we don't need to attach network cable to the phone or to our laptop. We can just consume the network and make profit of it. This is the very same concept. We can develop our code, our applications from the simplest one to the hardest, to the complex one, and we can uh, just ship it on the cloud without worrying about uh, how many CPU, how many RAM, how many disks I need, uh, and which is the best uh, networking stack I have to choose, how will I will monitor the, my infrastructure, how will scale. This is uh, the, the basic concept uh, of serverless. So as a developer, I don't want to care anymore about provisioning, maintaining, planning, I want just to focus on my code and shipping 
quickly as quick as possible to the cloud so this is the um, CNCF um, standard definition of what is serverless it's a, a serverless computing refers to the concept of building and running applications that do not require server management as simple as that so as Kelsey Tower said one time when we have a great idea the last thing we want to do is stop the infrastructure to run it this is quite huge because uh, building software uh, it's an act of uh, creativity and uh, should be sustained in uh, all the ways possible and also everything that can help me to reduce the time to market uh, is helping uh, my business and uh, help me to just focus on uh, the business value I'm proposing to my users and uh, it's full gold at the end. So serverless, it's all about the developer experience because it offers me uh, some unique features like uh, it's cost resource efficient, the it allows me to scale to down to zero when I don't have any load to my workloads. I can use a model which is uh, the pay-as-you-go if I'm using a lot of uh, services, uh, if I have, uh, I have a lot of loads, a lot of traffic to my new super application, I will pay just for the time in the seconds that I will consume of that service. I don't want to pay, I will not to pay anymore for idle service doing nothing. Then it's capable to support the automation and uh, supporting my full uh, dev cycle from uh, my development environment to the build environment, to the, to the CI, to the prod. And it's capable to automate all the aspects that are around an application deployed on the cloud, like uh, make it uh, uh, scale it, to how to handling the failures and how to recovery on, uh, from that. So when uh, we think about serverless, basically we think to the function as a service. Maybe you already know this uh, this term, which is uh, sold a lot from the cloud vendors. Maybe you know AWS Lambda, which is basically functions and events. Functions that are a piece of code usually written in JavaScript, but you we will see later that you can develop in uh, several languages to perform a specific task. Then there are events, which is a response to something that happens in the cloud, like, for example, an HTTP call or a file loaded in a bucket or a new entry uh, stored in a database that triggers the functions to do something. So let's see some very simple uh, use cases. Uh, like mm, uh, they are just a, a bit more advanced than the hello world just to make you understand what is uh, which are the use cases mm, simple um, standard use cases of uh, serverless of function as a service in this case let's imagine that uh, we have to translate uh, files from uh, Italian to Spanish and uh, our uh, non-functional requirement from our clients is that uh, we have to scale up on demand because maybe they have uh, tons of files just in a fixed hour in, in the morning, maybe from 10 to 11. And uh, they want to just pay for the service. They don't want to build an infrastructure and paying when uh, and, uh, no files are uh, translated or uploaded to the service. So the infrastructure we build 
is uh, this one. It's very simple. We have a client that could be an API or a human uploading a file on a cloud storage, which is uh, something like an hard drive, a cloud hard drive, where I can up upload files. This file, this cloud storage, uh, as is a serverless uh, uh, product on uh, the cloud vendor, it, it, it is capable to generate an event saying that, uh, hey, one file has been uploaded here. And uh, we can attach to this event and we can uh, trigger our, uh, our function. Uh, yeah, we trigger the cloud pub sub uh, service in this case, where the files uh, gets stored on the pub sub messaging to make it capable to run uh, multiple functions. And then this service, which is another serverless service, is uh, triggering the function which, which basically use the cloud vendor service to translate the file and upload back in another folder the translated file. So what we have at the end of the day is an infrastructure, infrastructure capable to translate files, tons of that without uh, worrying about to pay something when uh, we don't uh, want to translate nothing, basically. Another use case where uh, we want to process real-time data and the push notification to the mobile client. So we have two things to do. We have to process the data and push some notifications. And uh, also here we want to scale up on demand and we want just to pay what we use. Uh, let's imagine that we are bidding something for the stock market. We know that the trading hours are between um, 9 and 6 p.m. And uh, between this time frame we receive a lot of uh, raw data. So as you can see, there are clients that are pushing uh, the raw data to our uh, PubSub uh, ingestion queue which trigger the function which basically implement our business value of our product uh, translating the stock row data in something more useful for our users. Maybe we are monitoring some, some indices. And uh, then we push it back, the converted data in another queue, which trigger another function, which are our um, the second uh, our business uh, value which take this data and push the notification to our clients when the trading hours are over we basically don't we are not paying uh, nothing because we are not receiving uh, nothing from the uh, from the stock market so which are the key properties of uh, function as a service uh, function as a service are uh, much like uh, standard functions you are used to write uh, in uh, conventional programming languages they are small they are separate units of logic they take an input arguments process them in uh, some manner and uh, then return the result so they are uh, stateless, which means that uh, uh, you are not in control of, uh, as you are not in control of the underlying server infrastructure, you can save, uh, for example, a file to disk or, uh, and expect it that at the next run uh, you will uh, find the file there. And uh, because any invocation of the function uh, could potentially be executed in another uh, server under the hood. Ephemeral because uh, they are designed to spin up very quickly, do their work, and then shut down again. They are designed to have a maximum execution time according to the vendor imposed limits. 
which is uh, usually seconds or just a bunch of minutes. So if you are processing a big, uh, big data, for example, where you need to run a job for hours, serverless functions are not the best uh, scenario to implement it. They are event-triggered uh, because, as uh, as we see, as uh, we saw in the previous slide, uh, we can invoke, we can trigger the function based on uh, some events, which could be uh, HTTP call, which is an event made by a client, by a user, or uh, another event generated by another cloud service like a PubSub or a database, and so on. And uh, they are uh, scalable uh, from zero to n, and uh, they are uh, they have a problem, which is the cold start. Because as they can scale to zero, it means that uh, they are not deployed uh, basically nowhere inside the inside the cloud. So when uh, we start from scratch a new function, we are uh, facing a phenomenon called cold start which is, broadly speaking, uh, uh, the time the cloud vendors spend to allocate the function, the resources to spin up the function on a machine and make it available on, uh, to the caller. Uh, you can imagine the time you spend when uh, you must run a new Docker container, when uh, you must pull it, and uh, then uh, you must run it. This is the basically roughly the time the vendors have to spend to run the functions. But you pay this call start just for the first time because at the next invocations, the function is uh, kept warm. And uh, we are talking about uh, from uh, a bunch of milliseconds, 100 milliseconds to 3, 5, 10 seconds, depending on uh, also the language runtime are you using and the if you um, and, uh, some other uh, characteristics. Like if you are running the function inside the VPC on AWS, the time is like 10, 15 seconds, but they are working on to fix it. Another uh, property that it's uh, fully managed by a third party, uh, like AWS Lambda, as I said, Azure Function, uh, Out0 Web Tasks, Google Cloud Function, and so on. But serverless. Uh, it's not just function as a service. We have a plethora of services uh, which make the which are the glue between our functions, which basically uh, handle the data and the, the services that uh, store the data. For example, as you can see, if we cross the serverless ecosystem and the platform as a service uh, ecosystem, you can imagine, uh, for example, uh, GKE from Google or Heroku. They all they have uh, they have always uh, something to to store the data that uh, could be like uh, NoSQL database, like uh, Google Firebase, where uh, basically you have uh, something that uh, responds to you like uh, serverless because you are not paying uh, for Firebase or another service like that. How many CPU, how many gigabytes, or how many instances of that database are spinned up for for you? But we are just paying the bandwidth that we are consuming when uh, you are consuming it, and uh, the time, the service, uh, for example, the number of uh, queries. But uh, we can apply the same concept also for uh, to the other services like uh, PubSub, BigQuery, and, and so on. So serverless, it's also about the billing model. We can uh, consume some uh, traditional service like uh, a relational database like MySQL, but uh, using it uh, like uh, serverless, uh, using a serverless uh, paradigms at the end, because we are just paying what we use. 
for nice definition, it's uh, this one where a server solution is one that costs you nothing to run if nobody is using it, excluding the data storage, which is the persistent part that uh, you have to pay it uh, all the time, of course, because someone must keep your data, the data for you. You are consuming spaces, space. So to recap, what is serverless? Serverless is something that uh, requires no servers. It's idiomatic that allows me uh, to use the power of uh, my tools uh, without any kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, modifications. For example, I don't want to be forced to use a particular uh, PHP libraries or particular Node.js runtime. I want to exploit all the power of my tools. And uh, it's event-driven. I can. Uh, it, it's capable to generate events from uh, all the services involved in uh, in order to make the architecture respond to some events. And uh, it's free of lock-in, so I can uh, write a function that is capable to run on AWS Lambda, and I want to take it as is and uh, deploy it in another server like uh, Google Cloud Function or uh, spin up that function on my laptop. This is the in an ideal world what uh, is serverless. But today on public cloud, uh, the situation is a bit different because we have a limited uh, uh, runtime language support. We can, uh, we can, for example, deploy a Ruby function on uh, the public uh, cloud function as a service. And uh, the vendor uh, usually propose a proprietary mechanism to package and deploy the function. And uh, then there is uh, the lock-in because uh, the event format between uh, the services uh, is proprietary and uh, the run times uh, where I run the functions uh, is uh, some way locked in. Because, for example, if I want to add a new extension to a PHP function as a service runtime, I cannot do it. Yeah, that's it. It's not really the case because with AWS or other services, you have some mechanism to add some custom libraries to the runtimes, but yeah, they are not officially supported. So let's see what is the lock-in. Uh, starting using uh, an example, we implemented uh, um, uh, super complex applications. You can see that uh, is capable to convert CSV file uh, to JSON. Uh, we implemented for GCP. So we are capable to receive these CSV files uh, from a uh, PubSub queue and uh, using a functions to convert it and uh, give them this, this JSON to our, uh, to our user. Then our marketing team comes to us and say, that, okay, we uh, sold this solution to another user, but they are not using GCP, they are using AWS. Perfect, we can select the same services on AWS Instead of cloud storage, we use S3. Instead of PubSub, we use SQS. They are the very same service. And uh, we reuse the cloud functions. We implemented the Google Cloud Functions. So we run the code. Everything is broken. Why? Because as you can see here on the left and the right side, this is the event we receive from the two vendors. The, right, uh, the left one is uh, from AWS. Uh, the right one is from Google Cloud. They are totally proprietary. So to solve this, we have to implement something like an uh, event processor capable to take all the uh, proprietary event formats and uh, convert in something standard. Uh, we must define our standard to process the function. So we have to implement a new uh, layer of uh, our uh, application 
and uh, we have to extend our uh, initial cloud function to support it but we don't have to invest mm, uh, a lot of time uh, creating uh, a new standard because uh, a standard exists which is cloud events using uh, cloud events we can uh, just rely on a standard format and uh, make our function uh, working uh, seamless but the problem is that uh, today uh, cloud events uh, is not uh, very implemented in uh, the public uh, vendors but the cloud events it's a specification it's uh, just a, spe a specification for describing event data in a common way it's a, as a project created by the CNCF it's a joint collaboration between uh, the big vendors uh, like AWS, Google, IBM, Alibaba, Microsoft, but they just uh, contributed to the standard uh, right now. Maybe they will adopt the, the format on other services. So right now, it's just supported by Azure with the Devon Grid, which is a service capable to receive uh, Azure events and uh, push it back like uh, cloud events standard in a standard format, basically. Well, so the question is, why serverless on Kubernetes? Because uh, we want uh, to, um, as developers or as operators, we want to rely on uh, the same uh, very cool features of the developing application uh, using serverless, but using also the extensibility and the power of Kubernetes and containers. Let's see what, what is the developer experience on Kubernetes today. We need to, we start to write the code, we finish to write it, and uh, we want to push it in, uh, in the cloud. So we write the code, we build the Docker image, we push the Docker image to a registry, we are forced to do it. We must write tons of YAML uh, manifests to deploy it. And then we must apply it, hoping that everything will be fine, basically. As you can see, any step we add to uh, the writing code and shipping it, it's a waste of time, basically. What we want to do is just write code and ship it to the cloud as developers. So developing on Kubernetes is not easy. Uh, it's not the right uh, abstractions for end developers because we have to know a lot of APIs, we must know what is a deployment, what is a service, and uh, we are uh, dealing with networks. We must know what is an ingress, what is an HPA, we have to choose the monitoring solution, we must secure the communications between the services. There are a lot of moving parts laying around between our code and infrastructure. So. But for everything I said now, it's a great platform to build a platform as a service on top of it because of that primitives and uh, its extensibility. So let's imagine that we want, uh, we want to build a serverless experience on Kubernetes. So let's see which are the parts we will need to implement it if we want to our by ourselves. We need something to wake up workloads on a request, like uh, it works uh, like the functions, basically. We don't want something that is uh, running all the time uh, somewhere. We want to trigger uh, an event and uh, create the service when just when we need it. Then uh, we need something to scale up and scale back to zero our workloads, like the functions. And uh, something also to turn our code into a container to skip all the boring parts of uh, writing uh, the Docker file, building it, pushing it in our, our register, and so on. 
and uh, an eventing system capable to have uh, configurable sources and a subscriber, which will be our functions. But we don't uh, need to implement by ourselves all these kind of things because it will require millions of dollars, maybe, and uh, a team of uh, 50 engineers. We can uh, just rely on uh, Knative. Knative is a Kubernetes-based platform to build, deploy, and manage modern serverless workloads based on containers. And it offers uh, features like scale to zero, auto-scaling, and an eventing framework. It's a project uh, born in Google, and uh, they release, uh, release it uh, as open source like they did for uh, Kubernetes. And uh, it uh, attracted a lot of interest uh, between the community and also from the big companies like Pivotal, SAP, Red Hat, IBM. They are creating products based on Kinetic or they already created a product based on it. So let's see which are the Kinetic building blocks. We start from the platform. The platform is based on Kubernetes and it's all primitives plus a service mesh. Service mesh, it's a teeny layer between our uh, services. It's a network-defined software layer that allows us to do things like uh, upgrade upgrading the connection uh, from raw to secure using MLTS automatically. We don't have to implement it. We can uh, define uh, advanced traffic routing between the services and, and so on. What it happens inside Kubernetes, it's a proxy mainly it's li like a sidecar proxy between our uh, services and um, then on top of it we have the three big uh, primitives of uh, Knative which are also three uh, three projects which are bid, uh, serving and uh, venting. Let's see um, in uh, detail wha what they are. Knative serving basically it's uh, one of the main uh, components. It allows us to do a lot of uh, nice things like scale up and scale back to zero. This is something that the Kubernetes uh, doesn't support natively, like the, the concept of scaling to zero. When uh, you spin up a new deployment, uh, you can uh, you must have always uh, at least one instance of uh, the application you are running. So it's extending the behavior of Kubernetes, allowing allowing it to scale up to zero, to scale down to zero. Sorry. Then, thanks to the service uh, service mesh, we can uh, we have a fine-grained traffic routing. We have uh, automatic metrics and telemetry between our services. Also, thanks all uh, also in this case, thanks to the service mesh, and uh, we have a point-in-time snapshot of code and configuration, creating the creating a sort of uh, service revisions. This is quite nice because uh, we can deploy, for example, multiple concurrent services and uh, we route the traffic between 80% uh, to the old one and 20 to the new one. If, if, if everything is fine, we can switch all the traffic to the new one. We can uh, inspect a lot in uh, how the traffic, the load is coming inside the services and decide how to route the requests based not just on uh, the number of uh, revisions we have, but also, for example, by inspecting the headers in uh, the request. Let's see how we define a new application inside Knative. Uh, as you can see, we are just, uh, maybe if you are familiar with Kubernetes, everything is uh, must be done in uh, YAML. 
that's why a lot of people jokes about uh, to when you work a lot with Kubernetes, you became a YAML engineer. But uh, here we are basically with uh, 15 uh, YAML lines. We are defining a full uh, application stack, uh, basically replacing uh, deployment, the service, the ingress. We are just saying that we want to run a new service, which is not a Kubernetes service, as you can see, because we are relying on uh, the API from Knative we are defining an application which is called a service and uh, we specify the containers we can inject some environment variables and, uh, and so on we can also go deep in uh, the details like uh, extending uh, instructing Knative to do something like uh, okay I don't want to be affected by the cold start so I can say to Knative okay for this service I want to have always at least one instance of it and uh, we can uh, also uh, changing the um, the aspect of uh, how the service uh, will scale. For example, in this case, we are uh, saying that to Knative that we want to scale based on the concurrent uh, request. Maybe if you are familiar with the Kubernetes, you know when uh, you do these kind of things, you are referring, I want to scale based on how many CPUs is consumed or or how many RAM is uh, allocated by the processes. So here, here we are uh, in a more abstract uh, uh, scenario because we are just saying to Gnative that uh, we want to scale based on uh, the request, like a function, basically. The second big component is Gnative Eventing, which is a complete eventing system for event-driven apps. It has two components, which is the broker, which is the main components capable to receive act to receive all the events coming from uh, more disparate sources and uh, the trigger which is uh, the glue between uh, our service and the, uh, the events is that is coming in this is how we define a trigger basically we are uh, just saying that uh, for a message coming in as you can see in uh, the filter part the message who has the um, these two attributes, the type and, uh, tar and uh, type and source, we want to subscribe it, we want to send it basically to our service called Hello World Go. We are just instructing the broker to filter the message using that pattern and send it back to the service we are defined that. We can adjust, uh, as you can see, basically it's just um, HTTP message to the broker with uh, some uh, cloud events header, standard headers, and uh, the message, the content of the message that uh, we want to send to the service. We can also, uh, of course, uh, we will use in a real uh, production, uh, a real uh, business scenario, some someone that will generate the message uh, in an automatic way. But as you can see, for the sake of simplicity, that is the message that is coming to the broker that will come to the broker and coming to you, to your service. So the third component is Kinetic Bid, but uh, the, there is a problem because it has been deprecated uh, some releases ago because they say that uh, building uh, the image, the source to image, it's a so big, uh, broader topic that uh, it requires a new uh, it's, uh, it's space and a new project. And they uh, choose the to close it and uh, the community took it off 
took it uh, the project and created uh, another project which is called Tecton Pipelines. Tecton Pipelines basically it's uh, is born from the Knative uh, bit component. They rebranded it, uh, they created a new community around it and they, they extended it of course. Uh, this project uh, it's not uh, only there to provide something to be the docker image in uh, a simpler way but uh, it, mm, it aims to mm, provide something to declare CI CD pipelines using the Kubernetes, st Kubernetes style definition. Then another uh, nice aspect that the builds can run completely within Kubernetes using projects like Canico and BitKit, so we don't uh, strictly force to use the Docker daemon, which can have some, which has some security problems because you need a daemon, it, uh, it needs to have uh, the root access and so on. And uh, as it uh, is a very big project, uh, as I said, it's uh, open, openly governed. They created a foundation which governed the project, which is a branch of the CNCF. So what we can do with the Knative? We can, as a developer, we can uh, use it to deploy uh, our stuff uh, in a more streamlined way than uh, the raw Kubernetes. As an operator, I can put a level of, uh, of abstractions between Kubernetes and the devs. And also, I have for free the fact that I can keep the costs under control because the workloads can scale to zero. So I will consume less power, I will consume less virtual machines, and so on. I will this for free, basically. And as a platform architect, I can decide that I want to build the next great uh, uh, platform as a service based on containers using the already implemented Knative components because they are uh, modular. So let's see some Knative native platforms that are uh, in, uh, available today. One of the most advanced one to me is the Pivotal. Uh, it's the one from Pivotal. It's called Reef. It's an open source project from Pivotal, but now they are acquired from VMware. It has a deep Kubernetes integration using CRD, so it's, it's using uh, native APIs. It's a pluggable. It's pluggable, so uh, now you can choose between Knative or Core. You are not forced to use Knative, but uh, you, you uh, as a user, behave uh, as an end user, always like uh, um, serverless platform, basically. And uh, they pick from Knative just the serving part because they decide to build. Uh, to implement something from scratch to build the, the uh, to, uh, to create the containers, and they are totally based on the build packs, which is another CNCF standard. Maybe if you know Heroku, we, you know what uh, what are the build packs. But basically, broadly speaking, it's something more uh, uh, higher level of uh, from Docker files, and they are capable to understand based on uh, the framework on the language uh, you are using, which are the best. Uh, things to do to create a container without asking you to provide the docker file. And uh, another uh, good point that they have a CLI tool to, man to manage the entire life cycle. This is gold because uh, when we are developing, we, we need a lot of uh, small things. And uh, if we can do it using a streamlined uh, command line, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's super cool. Then there is uh, another uh, project, uh, of course, uh, which is backed by Google, Knative, uh, it's a project born from them. 
It's uh, fully managed by Google Cloud Platform. Uh, it exists in two versions, which is the Cloud Run um, uh, service and the Cloud Run on GKE. Basically, the difference is that uh, with Cloud Run, you have just the gcloud command line to manage uh, your containers as functions. And uh, you know that underlying Knative is working if you respect uh, the, the YAML generated, uh, you can see it, but you cannot interact or change the Knative behaviors. You take it what uh, the service offers, basically. But if you want to go more advanced, then the you, also, uh, you have a GKE cluster. You can decide to ask to GCP to install Google Cloud Run on your cluster. And uh, basically, what you have at the end of the day you have a Knative plus Istio installed and managed by Google into your cluster. Then there is uh, OpenShift Serverless, which is uh, <coughs> a full stack Knative uh, product. It's not uh, yet stable, it's a technology preview, it's in a technology preview feature only, not yet supported. And it's, as, uh, as I said, it's based on the full stack of Kinetic uh, serving plus everything plus Tecton pipelines. And uh, yeah, there is a breaking news. The breaking news, which is that Google uh, decided to that uh, will uh, they will not donate Kinetic to the CNC, uh, CNCF Foundation. And uh, they try to explain why, but uh, the reaction uh, of uh, the community, uh, it was very harsh. As you can see here, Brandon Barnes and uh, Joe Beda, that are the two, two of the co-founders of Kubernetes. We should remember that the CNCF and all the cloud native ecosystem has been created uh, with uh, that spark when the Kubernetes was donated to the Linux Foundation I think six years ago, they decided to create this big community of uh, developers and operators, uh, promoting uh, the open governance and uh, creating uh, what we today call Knative. So maybe this will affect the, um, the adoption of Knative. Maybe Google will change the idea, but uh, we'll see. Right now, Knative is uh, an open source project. You can contribute to the project. Of course, but uh, it's not under the CNCF umbrella. There are a lot of uh, other uh, solutions, more simpler than Knative, like uh, that uh, just use uh, the Kubernetes primitives to implement something like uh, a serverless platform. I try to collect uh, most of them here. Uh, the most implemented one, as uh, they basically have the a common set of features most of the projects are uh, all older than Kubernetes, like uh, OpenFast, which is a project by Alex Ellis, uh, which uh, I guess, if I'm not wrong, was created at the time of Docker Swarm, then integrated uh, Kubernetes. It's a very nice project. There is al also Kubeless, which is a project by Bitnami and, and so on. They have uh, uh, um, they are uh, much lighter than Knative if you install it on in uh, on your cluster. Uh, they support containers, of course, because we are running them on uh, top of Kubernetes. They all all of them have a custom CLI to support the entire day, uh, life cycle. They are written in Go, so they are. Uh, if you are familiar with Go, you can uh, easily extend it. Uh, we know that Docker and Kubernetes are based on that, so it's quite easy to uh, uh, glue 
the this service with uh, with Kubernetes with the Kubernetes API, for example. And uh, they are uh, backed by big vendors, Oracle, VM, VMware, so they are uh, not there to disappear very, very soon. Uh, if you want, uh, we, you want to have a better idea of what is uh, serverless for now, the CNCF created uh, something like the serverless landscape. Maybe you are already saw the CNCF cloud native landscape, which is a group of uh, cloud native projects. And uh, as the serverless ones, it uh, was very big. They decided to keep it uh, out from uh, the standard landscape and created this uh, this one, where they basically grouping the services uh, based on their if they are platforms, frameworks, and etc. So serverless on Kubernetes uh, uh, allows us to have a flexible re language runtimes on based on containers, which is a plus. Because uh, if you are developing uh, our application using uh, the most desperate language with the, the standard function as a service, service we cannot uh, do it because we are forced to use just a set of languages supported. But here we are using containers. So we can uh, just ship it what we want, basically. We can run it on uh, multi and uh, hybrid cloud and on my laptop. This is uh, one of the features that uh, the standard function as a service uh, does, uh, don't allow it. And uh, we can mix and match stateless and stateful workloads always thanks to Kubernetes. And uh, but, but it means to have a lot of new moving parts running on uh, our cluster. For example, when we install Knative on our cluster, we are mm, going to install plus uh, 100 plus uh, CRDs, a lot of components. Maybe using the other services, uh, it's uh, the situation. Uh, it's very different because they are very lighter, and uh, yeah, it's an another uh, set of components you have to manage. But you have a great benefits using it to develop to develop your uh, new kind, uh, new generation of workloads. So in the cloud platform, I think that uh, in the next few months, uh, here's the Kubernetes uh, paradigms and the serverless ones will converge and uh, will be much easier to <coughs> using Kubernetes to as the new operating system platform to build our next generation of applications. And uh, maybe we will say to Kubernetes to ju just run the code instead of uh, running the containers and uh, so on. Muchas gracias. Si te ha gustado el podcast y quieres estar a la última en tecnología, suscríbete a nuestro canal de iVoox e y escúchanos donde quieras. Para más información, autentia.com.